gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. So on this episode of Meet a Minion, Gorty here, and I have Coder in Crisis with me. Thank you for joining, Coder. No problem. Thank you. Absolutely. So we'll start off with a series of questions that we have prepared, and then we'll take a turn, and maybe you could turn the tables on me, and then we have some topics to discuss. So I'll fire away. Okay. What's the one talent or skill that you have that would surprise most people? Yeah, you know, I thought about this, and I don't know that there's much about me that is surprising, really. I'm kind of your standard issue programmer. I suppose, well, actually, I suppose the one thing that does surprise people, uh, so, and I've mentioned this on Twitter a few times lately because I've had some trouble, I have a 10-year-old BMW, and so in the last couple of years, I've gotten into do-it-yourself BMW maintenance, which is every bit as, well, frustrating as it sounds. But but it seems to surprise people because, you know, it it... I guess to a lot of people, that sounds like something that they wouldn't, you know, it's like a, like some sort of mystic art that they wouldn't even approach. Absolutely. I have a good friend that I used to work with who has a BMW and you generally hear the running joke that BMWs are constantly in the shop. So I think most people think that it's a daunting task to service a BMW. Yeah. And there are, well, it, you know, I, I've said this about not just BMW, but German cars in general, because I've seen this with a couple of them. They are designed to be built. They are not designed to be fixed. <laughs> That's it, awesome. Yeah, you can you can assemble them. <laughs> they are not intended to ever be disassembled again. Well, I, I might have to worry because my wife just got a uh, Mini Cooper, which is now 100% BMW parts. Yep. So hopefully we won't run into something similar, although we're leasing. so. Oh, you don't, you don't have to worry then. Yep. All right. What do you do for fun or, or to relax? <laughs> Not BMW maintenance. <laughs> These days, well, mostly uh, I'll do retro video games sometimes. I'm a big anime fan. I'll, I'll post on Twitter about anime sometimes. I actually, I, I got back into that. I was an anime fan in college uh, going back 20 odd years. And I just kind of got out of it for a while. And then yeah, about five or about five or six years ago, I just started poking around online. Like, gee, I wonder what's out now, and I just kind of got back into it. So, it's 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 all geeky stuff, basically. That's what I do. Nope, that makes sense. I'm a avid video game player myself, and maybe not as much into the anime. Although, uh, when I work out, I tend to try to find shows, uh, series to watch as I, uh, you know, jog on the treadmill. Sure. And I ran into. Uh, what is it called? It's on Netflix. It's an anime show, like like Cyborg Zero Zero Nine. You is, it Gund- is it a Gundam series? It's not a Gundam series. It's okay. a Netflix original. Oh, okay. Uh, so Netflix is looks like they're investing into a fair number of anime series as well uh, on their own. So, yeah, I know that. Uh, so, you know, this this kind of branches off into something slight, well, slightly related for years, people have been talking, have been complaining about cable and how expensive it is. And they've said, wouldn't it be great if we could just go a la carte? Well, if you are an anime fan, you realize what a fool's errand that is because you have Netflix, you have Hulu that has anime series, you have Crunchyroll, you have um, Funimation or whatever they call it now. And so basically if, it, depending on who is streaming whatever new series, it's like ten bucks a month for each one of those platforms. Right. So now, if you want, if you want to stream the new anime series legally, you're looking at fifty bucks a month. Sure. So and 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 you know so along the lines of doing uh you know like a la carte cable, depending on what you like or what you're you know or what you're into, you can run into the same problem. You'll have Amazon Prime, which if you have you know your Amazon subscription, you have Hulu, Netflix whatever, pretty soon you're probably, you might be paying more than you were before. Absolutely. Where's your favorite place in the world? Oh, honestly, probably Disney world. How many times have you been? Oh my God. My wife and I have gone there at least once a year. We've been together 20 years Awesome. at least once a year. We got married there. Okay. So we've been, I mean, I've been there. Got it. It's got to be at least 
35 times probably. And it doesn't matter how often I've been there. Every time I go back, it's wonderful. That's been my experience. I've, I've only been four times. I've taken, I went twice when I was growing up and then now twice with kids uh, and the family um, at different age ranges. And I find it almost new and interesting every time I go. The experience is, is different every time. Yeah, there's, there's, always, there's always something else to do. There's something that you maybe you don't usually do. And you'll say, yeah, you know what, this time, yeah, why don't we try this? Uh, a couple of years ago, we went to the Fort Wilderness Resort, which we, we had never been there. We just went over for a day. And they have all kinds of, of like day activities. So we did like, a, they have like a Segway tour where they take you around like some of the trails. Fort Wilderness is huge. And so they take you around some of the trails and they'll show you there's different like, uh, it's almost, it's not quite like a backstage tour, but there's some, there's things you wouldn't ordinarily see. And they'll tell you, you know, like sort of like the history behind like some parts of the resort or why they decided to do something a certain way. And it was, it was really cool. And it was, you know, it was like, it was like a half day thing. But it's one of those things like if you just went there like your first or second time, you probably wouldn't do that. Sure. But if you go back all the time, you, you know, you, you kind of eventually you'll pick your head up and look around and go, hey, you know, there's all kinds of stuff around here. <laughs> Who knew? Absolutely. Since you might be a Disney World expert out of the, the major parks there, what's your favorite ride? Tower of Terror is my favorite ride. Tower of Terror. Excellent. I think I, I, there's a soft spot for Haunted Mansion. Oh, uh, yeah. For me, just it was the ride I most memorable growing up. I always loved it. I got excited to go on it. You never really freaked me out or anything. I just, mm. but it was so much fun. I think our kids' favorite ride is Soaring over at Epcot Center. That is outstanding. Although I liked it, I like the old Soaring better. Did they change it? Yeah, they changed it, oh, three years ago. Okay, then we were on the original one. Yeah, so the, the original was Soaring over California. Yes, that and was the new the one. one is I don't know what they call it, but it's like soaring around the world. Mm. And it's it's okay, but I the new one feels it feels too gimmicky. The old one was just was really just very very nicely done. It, exactly. That's what I think drew all of us and in particular our kids to it. Mm-hmm. And my favorite place to eat and we've done this now twice was the Animal Kingdom Don, Donald's uh, a ranch house does a, a buffet breakfast as part of their character meet and greet. And uh, Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. And whatever that called, their breakfast was so good. Like all the selection and the food. And for being a buffet still, the food was really high quality. Oh, it was Tusker House? Mm, no, it had a character name in it. Okay. Because they also do character dining at Tusker House, and that's also a okay. buffet. Got it. Uh, and also the food is, is quite good. Yes. Yes. So maybe a little more apropos towards why you and I are here together. What drew you into doing technology or computers in general? So I think I've always just been naturally drawn to it. Uh, I had a computer when I was oh, five or six. Uh, my dad's company, uh, my dad worked for an accounting firm and they got a of, this was in the about 1980 or so, and they got a whole pile of computers for the office. And they bought Apple's, oddly, because, of course, the accounting industry pretty much settled on IBM, but that shook out a few years later. But they, all, they had all Apple IIs. And the company allowed anyone that wanted one, they could buy one for themselves because they got a group discount. So my dad got one. So I've been using a computer since I was five or six years old. Uh, and I also had uh, I had an, uh, an Atari twenty six hundred from probably was probably around that same time since I was little. Okay, was technology always your plan, or did you know career wise? I I understand that it's it was part of you growing up, but mm. did you ever have a different career, like a fireman or astronaut or, God forbid, a lawyer? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, lawyers out. I you know I'd like to be able to sleep at night. <laughs> I, although I, I sometimes joke that it, it feels like everybody I follow on Twitter is a lawyer. Well, we got a couple in our in our stable. Yeah. Um, so when I I, I uh, when I was younger, uh, I really liked astronomy, and I really liked. I guess I mean you would call it. I I wouldn't I wouldn't have known it as astrophysics, but I thought rockets were fascinating. 
uh, unfortunately, my, my vision is too poor. And honestly, my overall physical condition is probably not good enough anyway. Uh, but I thought, I thought being, an, being an astronaut would have just been the greatest thing ever. I didn't really, I mean, when I got into college, I had no plan at all. I actually briefly thought about going into journalism. I dodged a bullet. <laughs> but then I think that uh, one of my, actually, one of, one of my bosses told me once that, he, that whatever, I, whatever I had started to go into, I probably would have ended up as a programmer anyway. That just, it just seems like that's just sort of my mindset is just, that goes that way. So no, it wasn't always my plan, but I think it's, you know, and someone, you know, one of the interview questions that you'll get if you go on a job interview is, you know, is, is like, if you, if you weren't doing this, what else would you do? Sure. And my honest answer has always been, you know, I got to, you know, I got to tell you, I don't know what else I would do. I mean, really, this is just the way I think and just the way I approach things. And this is, this is what I do. I'll tell you, we're, we're probably not too different. I had an Atari 800 starting in sixth grade, which was right around early 1980s, um, year or two after they came out. Um, my dad had brought home other computers beforehand in a similar thing, although he was in a computer-related field. I grew up doing Radio Shack kits, and I, always, I was always on that borderline of doing electrical engineering versus computers. And so I knew the whole time. I knew from probably grade school up that I was going to do something in that field and did focused on math and science and computer stuff in high school and then all the way through college as well. So is your, you know, without going maybe into personal details, is your Twitter persona, and by that I mean the kind of things you post and, and all, is that a separate persona or is that, you know, is it, as I have here in the question, is it an epic beard like Dusty Gibbons? <laughs> Or, or is that kind of really who you are? Um, my Twitter persona is probably a little, a little more brash than I am personally. It's sort of like me turned up to 11, I suppose. It's largely the way I am. So we'll wrap up with uh, two more serious questions and then maybe one or two goofy questions. So how did you find the Gormagons? Did you, did you originally find our blog and then Twitter or did vice versa? It, was there anything in particular that then drew you to us to to keep the following? I f I replied and I was I I went back to look for the for the post, but I mean I got thousands of them, so I couldn't find it. But I replied to something that uh, that Pooter had had posted, and that was basically that. I mean, you know, we just started interacting, and then I discovered that there was about five other personalities here. <laughs> And then, which is always, it, it's, and it's always funny when, when, a, when, when a new guy figures this out, but yeah, and that was, that was basically that. And, and, uh, you know, I, and I, I, I came to realize, I think that, you know, the reason why I basically st stuck with, well, <laughs> the, the six headed monster was, was that, I mean, really, you know, all, all of, I mean, all of us, and I think all, all of the, what I, as I call them, the regulars, we all have a lot in common, I think, and we we're all quite a bit alike. Agreed. That's the sense I get. And as we do these minion interviews, if you will, I, I think we're going to get that as a theme that's woven through them. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and the other thing that I think you find, I mean, it's not just with you guys, but in, you know, in, in general with sort of all of us that have found each other is that it can, you know, it, it, it can be difficult sometimes to realize that, that there are other people that think the way you do. Yeah, I, you know, I stumbled upon it in a post that I wrote on the blog maybe two months ago or so where, you know, maybe to get political for a minute. And I was actually talking to my son about it tonight because he just got his voter registration information mm. in the mail. And he's 17, so he can't vote. But, you know, leave it to Maryland to say that he can and here's your voting place. So mm -hmm. maybe maybe they're suggesting go give it a try. Um <laughs> You know, I I have a hard time with both parties right now. I don't think either one is serving the country very well. I'm obviously drawn one way more than the other. Mm. But I think in I, – I get the sense on – in as you put it, our regulars on Twitter, as well as uh, some people that I just talk to in everyday life, that there's this unrepresented or, or uh, underrepresented group of people that that neither party really gets – and if that was ever capitalized on, I think for the foreseeable future, it would be a dominant, I don't know, third party if it ever formed into one. Yeah, third third parties are always 
with the way that our political structure is, third parties are problematic. They are. You would, you would, to be successful at a national level, you would have to get rid of winner take all at the state level. And neither of the two existing parties would be willing to do that. Correct. Um, so you would have to, I mean, the, the, the closest thing that, we, that we've seen, at least in our lifetimes, was probably Ross Perot. Absolutely. And he went nowhere. He didn't win any states. Yep. He did basically nothing. And that was the biggest movement that we saw. Yep. So it's very – and I, I, I agree to a point that it's a – well, actually, it is a large – it is a large percentage of the population that is either unrepresented or feels unrepresented. Uh, as, as I, as I say to a lot of people on Twitter, that's how you got Trump. Yeah, exactly. Because he, he's, he's, he ran as a Republican, but he was not a, as as we sometimes call them, an, an establishment Republican. Right. So maybe uh, two last questions here, and then I'll, I'll let you ask me a few, if you have any. So, for those of us that follow our Twitter, you probably have come across this question in our timeline. <laughs> What's your take on the great sandwich debate? So is a hot dog a sandwich or not? I'm firmly on team not. That's just, that's just my assessment. I, 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 don't see how, I don't see how anyone could consider it a sandwich unless they're being deliberately obtuse. Excellent. And best castle gourmand dwelling minion, Sleestack or Datho? Pooter. <laughs> Nicely played. All right, questions for me. So I know that. So how did how did all of you find each other? I mean, I know that I know there are some people that will listen to this that know that, but I know that a few of you went to school together, but not all of you did. Correct. So Volgi, Pewter, and I uh, all went to high school together and met independently our freshman year. And by the end of the freshman year, we were in a larger social group uh, and remained friends then from. Then forward, post-college, Volgi worked for a company here in the D.C. area where the czar and the Mandarin worked as well. So those three worked together for a while. They all left that company. Uh, Mandarin and um, czar moved back to the Midwest, and Volgi moved to the Midwest as well in a different area. And so the, uh, the three original ones three of us formed up and, and started doing the blog together after, you know, we said multiple times we should, we'd sit around in someone's basement talking after college or, um, or when we would periodically get together and, um, and with the families and all, we would make comments that uh, we should, ha we should have a radio show. Uh, Cause just some of the banter was at least to us was witty and entertaining and <laughs> um, at least amused us. And so we start, we said, well, why don't we try a blog? And we started that and quickly added the Mandarin and Czar. And Dr. J was one of these followers who was, he, he frequently submitted stuff uh, to be essentially guest posted. Hmm. And uh, we liked his, his takes on things. We thought we should round out the group a little bit. Uh, so we asked him to join as well. Um, so it's good. Uh, I think it as a, it's an interesting background mix of people uh, that formed up. So it's, it's kind of unique, I think, in, in how we've approached it. Let's see. Um, so uh, I said that Disney World's my favorite place in the world. So what's your favorite place in the world? I think my... Uh, so I've had a number of great vacations. And I think my favorite uh, still remains Hawaii. And, and by that, I mean the whole state. Um, hmm. um, my wife and I our personal favorite is the big Island uh, just for the diversity that you have there, everything from volcanoes and lava to these gorgeous beaches and um, you know, almost rainforest like um, vegetation. Um, and it's kind of a, a trite answer. I mean, a lot of people like Hawaii, um, but we, we enjoy traveling. So there's a lot of places I've, I've been to 48 States so I've seen a lot of the United States and, and there's a lot of great places. Um, but I'll probably stick with Hawaii as my favorite. Yeah. It's kind of hard to go wrong with Hawaii. <laughs> it is. Um, although it's, you know, kind of what's, well, at first it surprised me, but the more I think about it, the more I, the more I realize this is probably true. I've spoken to a number of people that have lived in Hawaii and hated it. I could not live there. 
So yeah. while it's my favorite place, mm. it's probably I should have probably said it's my favorite place to visit or vacation. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean they, they said that if you want to go anywhere, yep. it's eight hours away <laughs> yep. to go anywhere. You know, you mentioned anime before, uh, and and some other entertainment venues. So what's your take on the general entertainment scenes, particularly dealing with science fiction? Do you think it's getting better or not? And and do you think TV or movies and by TV I'll I'll include Netflix, Hulu, yeah, Amazon into into the TV side of that. I think that in gen well, sci-fi is one of those things that, that's been dying for about fifty years. Uh, so, you know, people, you know, every now and then you, you'll you, you'll hear people either in the industry or industry observers talk about how you know sci-fi is dying, no one cares about it anymore, and so on. I think it, it's it's probably about as healthy as it's ever been. Certainly, there has been a lot more interest in, especially well, m- more recently in more classic sci-fi, uh, things like Ender's Game, you know, finally got a movie adaption. It was the one a couple of years ago, uh, Arrival, which was, it's one of the, Arrival's one of those movies that I don't know what they were expecting it would do. It didn't do as well as they had hoped, but it was, it was wonderful because it was different. And I think it's nice that there are still studios and there are still directors that are willing to take a chance on something. And really I think we're we're sort of coming coming around on that cycle again because for many years now it's been you know sequels one two three four five superhero film superhero film superhero film and on and on and on and that's all fine but no one wants to take a chance anymore so you don't if you watch one Marvel Marvel movie you've watched pretty much all of them if you watch one DC movie you've watched pretty much all of those. If you watch one Transformers movie, I feel bad for you. <laughs> so that it's it's not so much that I mean the, the the science fiction scene in general is fine. It's just you need you need people in the industry that a understand what they're doing, b understand what they're looking at, and c understand how to sell it. And that seems to be the real problem with things like sci-fi. Um, sci-fi, even after all these years, still has a reputation of being something for geeks only. And even though if you tell a good story, it doesn't really matter. It could be science fiction. It could be a Western. It could be whatever. If you tell a good story, people will go see it. I mean, Star, well, Star Wars is not really – it's not sci-fi strictly. It's more of a space opera generally. But most people would, most people would consider it sci-fi, and it's the most sure. successful film franchise of all time, in spite of the fact that the last two or three of them have been horrible. Yeah, I tend to – I don't know if my outlook was maybe as bleak as saying that that it's been dying. I tend to agree with you in that. I think it's I think it's starting to rise uh, over let's say the last twenty years. I think it's improved. You know, I think that era where Star Wars, the original set of Star Wars movies, mm. the early Star Treks, regardless of you know the first one was just complete trash and. Um, uh, they recovered nicely with two. You know that era seemed to be like this little peak where sci-fi was, and and by that I mean, and maybe we should clarify. I'm I'm kind of excluding fantasy in the in the sense, like I didn't say sci-fi and fantasy because I'm I'm trying to distinguish from, say, the Lord of the Rings series and the yeah. Hobbits, which are clearly fantasy, and some people will lump those together. I'm I'm not for this conversation. So I think there was a peak, and then I think we had this big lull. And the Terminator movies were kind of a, a nice little, at least the beginning ones, were, were a nice little shot in the arm mm-hmm. uh, to power it forward. You could argue that the Back to the Future movies was a nice attempt at trying to bring some sci-fi stuff into the mainstream uh, and cross it over, which I think you know they were very successful. I still have a soft spot for all three of those films. You know, the harder core sci-fi, like I grew up reading tons of science fiction, Heinlein, Asimov, like all the major ones, and then a whole bunch of uh, Bradbury, and then a whole bunch of weird, you know, ones that you would find in anthologies of science fiction for a particular year. I, I think like Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, I thought was so well done. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. The story towards the end could have been improved a little bit. But even then, 
it was a good science fiction story. So I, I think it's getting better. And I'm, I'm actually, I think it has promise in that we're getting these more independent distribution media, such as Netflix and Amazon. But Amazon's The Expanse series mm. is, is phenomenal as a science fiction story. And it's unencumbered, right? It's, if geeks want to turn in, like you said, maybe that's who's going to turn in, but maybe they can tune in some others to start opening it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, and, and this is something that, you know, the, we saw this happen with digital music, and now we're starting to see it with digital video and digital distribution of media or of, of video. The old line studios, the old gatekeepers, have never done well when there's been a shift like that. And I think that a lot of them are just kind of beginning to figure out why a it can be a good thing and b it's not necessarily armageddon right now along with i mean i think the genre itself is fairly healthy however if you look at what's happening in in and around sci-fi literature and you and you also are starting to see this in tv and movies social justice has invaded and it is doing its level best to well if not turn people off of sci-fi just turn people off. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're starting to see, I mean, just more and more and more of, you know, of, of that sort of thing. And, and again, this is less on sci-fi. I mean, this is just, well, this has happened in other places too. And it's starting to, it's happened in video games and it's starting to, it's starting to show up here more and more. Although I think with things like Hulu and Netflix and more, more independent distribution, that might blunt that effect a little bit because you can, you do have more freedom you know, you you don't have to worry about, you know, well, we'll never get this distributed by a major studio if we have a story. If we if we have a storyline like uh, uh, like Star like Star Trek, the the Klingons were obvious. They were the Russians. Correct. Right. That was. I mean, that was obvious to everyone. Well, if we have these obvious, you know, Russian stand-ins as the bad guys, well, we can't do that. Or we have these are obviously supposed to be you know let's say Middle Eastern, they're supposed to be the bad guys. Well, we can't do that, or we'll never get this distributed by a major distributor. Correct. And I think that as you get more independent distribution, you're gonna you'll start to see maybe people will be willing to take a chance. And also the other thing that I that I didn't mention before, uh, international distribution is a much bigger piece of the of the puzzle than it ever was. And there's a lot of things that will get done, even if they may or may not, they may or may not quite appeal over here. But what they really are looking at now is places like China, where there's a billion and a half or almost two billion people. So if they can make something that is palatable over there, how it does here is almost an afterthought. Right. It's um, it's interesting too. Um, you know, we've mentioned a number of. Um, series or or uh shows that are when you think science fiction you almost immediately jump to space mm -hmm. one of my favorite writers uh a number of the gormagons know this is uh roger zelazny uh and he has the amber series um which is a play it, it's almost a blend of of king arthur and this dysfunctional family extended family with um, kind of magic, kind of advanced science. Um, so it's this, it's this kind of unique blend that really borders that line of what I was saying earlier of fantasy versus science fiction. Mm. Um, it would be interesting. I, I would have, I would love them to at least do, there's a 10 books total in the series. There's the first five, which are really good. The second five are kind of an afterthought. I almost think that that Zelazny was pressured into writing more and, and his heart wasn't in it. Um, they're good, but they're not as good as the first five. I, I would be, I would be uh, convinced that that would be a very unique either uh, series that somebody could launch on Netflix or Amazon or turn into a, you know, multi-movie kind of deal. Yeah. That sounds like that would be interesting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've, lately I've been reading a series. It's a a, a, y, a YA series. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if the series has a 
title overall, but I think they're called the Stoker and Holmes novels. Okay. Or the, or the Stoker and Holmes series. And, and it's, it's the, the younger sister of Bram Stoker, who is a vampire hunter, and the daughter of Mycroft Holmes and the niece of Sherlock Holmes, who <laughs> is an investigator. And it, but it takes place in, it's like 18, 1889 London, but it's like an alternate steampunk London. Interesting. Yeah. And it's very, it's very, it, it's sort of a blend of, of like old, like horror and sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, like vampires are real. Uh, you know, and there's all sorts. And uh, in, in the London of this era, electricity has been outlawed as dangerous. And so everything is steam powered. Huh. And it's just, it's very, oh, and also uh, time travel is a thing because in the first book, uh, an American from 2016 shows up. And nice. so that's, and so that's one of like the mysteries they have to solve is how did he get here and how do we get him home? And it's like I said, it's a, it's a YA series and it's, it's cute. Uh, I, I didn't think I was going to, it was one of those that I got, I think for, through BookBub for like, you know, either free or 99 cents or something like that. It, it sounded halfway interesting, but I, as I got kind of partway into the first book, I'm like, you know, this is actually not bad. So it's, you, it's a clever little world. You know, you mentioned BookBub. I stumbled on that maybe a year ago. And I've been, I've loved it. Like, mm. it's one of those, sometimes the emails I'll, I'll quickly scan. So I set up my preferences and you get, I think it's five books in the, in the recommended email that you can get daily. Yeah. Usually there's at least one or two a week that, that I'm like, oh, I got to make note of that. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that I could read to keep up with this, just time commitments and family and, and everything else. But I found one called The Collapsing Empire, and BookBub uh, had it for, like you said, 99 cents or $1.99, and it was an audiobook. So I'm oh. like, oh, this is great. They were actually venturing kind of into that audiobook world, and I said, this is great. I could download it, and I'll listen to it as I commute, because I got, at times, I have a, a long commute, and it was narrated by Will Wheaton, who, Wesley Crusher aside, is actually entertaining. He did an awesome job. The, the book is filled with foul language. <laughs> uh, they drop the F-bomb like every, every three sentences. But Will Wheaton does a phenomenal job narrating it. And the book is interesting. It takes place in a future instantiation of our universe where there's this thing called the flow. And so faster than light travel, you, you can't do it in normal space. But the flow allows you to essentially travel faster than light and the flow is essentially you can they say conceptualize it as a river that meanders through the universe and there are shallows where ships can put in or take out from the flow and given the title of the book something is happening to the flow and the whole universe that's built around it which includes this a religion these different houses and each house is uh, in charge of certain things. So this house builds military hardware. This house is in charge of agriculture. So it's a very closed socioeconomic system and something's changing that will uh, radically shift what goes on. And I just found myself mesmerized by the book. Yeah, that sounds, the, the way that the way they handle faster than light travel, that sounds like Babylon 5 a little bit. A little bit, yeah, exactly. We'll get right back to the Meet a Minion episode. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. Hi, I'm Gary, the owner of the best and only dog boarding house on the plateau of Lang, Menopause. Menopause offers boarding and daycare for man's best friend. We also offer a dog bath, grooming, pedicures, and all the pampering your dog needs because there are no bad dogs. Out. Every Halloween, we have the world's only haunted house for dogs. Ouch. So if you've got a little Bichon all the way up to a new feet, get in. You need menopause. We're at Flegel in Westmoreland, across from the liquor locker. Oh my god! Now, let's get back to the program. So, um, maybe we'll move on to the next topic. So, uh, we'll, we'll see if you caught my Easter egg in this. So, looking forward to 2038, where do you see the U.S. and or the world as far as technology? Like, flying cars, teleportation, post-apocalypse ruled by our AI-driven machine overlords. Um, like, prognosticate a little for us. 
um, I think that I think that the biggest the biggest gains the, the the places where we could see the biggest gains are in natural language processing and translation. Uh, it, it amazes me. Uh, I had this conversation with, I think it was with Kaiju a while back. Ka- well, and Kaiju and some of the other Bushis, you know, being in, being uh, uh, into anime, you know, I will encounter things that are written in Japanese. And of course I don't really speak it and I sure as hell can't read it. So I'll plug it into an online translator and I will get basically garbage something just completely i mean i mean you can if you really squint you can kind of pick up what they're trying to say but it's very difficult and machine translation not just of japanese but in general has not gotten any better in 20 years not really and i think that as natural language processing gets better so like we have things now like uh, like alexa and you know all the google home stuff as things like that get better i think if they can get a machine to wrap its head around nuance, and that's a hell of a problem, but if they can do that, then things like like machine translation will also get a lot better. Also, post-apocalypse ruled by our AI-driven machine overlords is, I don't know if, if it's quite that bad, but if history is any guide, we are shockingly naive when it comes to new technology. If you look at, if you look at like early, well, uh, the early like railroads were notoriously unsafe. People still used them because it was faster than anything else, than any other way you could get around, but they were notoriously unsafe. Early automobiles were not terribly reliable. The early days of, well, even the early days of, of, of computing, I remember writing you like user management and credential management subsystems where we stored passwords in plain text. Then you just did. Sure. Why wouldn't you, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, the early, uh, the way we handled nuclear power, you know, a lot of times, even though, I mean, we knew that radiation was dangerous and so on, but there were safety protocols in place. But a lot of times after a while, they just weren't followed because we, we naturally try to find shortcuts and faster ways of doing things. So I guarantee that the first AI system that is put in charge of anything really important is going to royally screw us over because we are shockingly naive when it comes to things like that. Um, flying cars will probably never happen, uh, at least not here. The liability alone, you, you could never get insurance for one. Um, also, I think just as far as if you look at the environmental impact, um, it's not something, I mean, anyone that's ever read anything I've posted would know that I don't really care so much about that, but there are a lot of people that do. And Getting something off the ground is a hell of a lot more energy intensive than just rolling it along the ground. So unless anything flying mass produced like that would almost certainly have to be electric. And there's a whole lot of other effects that follow on, that follow on from that. Um, it's not impossible, but like I said, just from liability, yeah, I don't know. And teleportation, <laughs> yeah. Liability, <laughs> forget it. Although... I, I don't know about in 20 years, but I think that as we're starting to see 3D printing, if they could, you know, I, I think that maybe not teleportation, but I think things like the Star Trek style replicators, uh, maybe not in the next 20 years, but though I think those will eventually be a thing. You wouldn't quite have the liability issues that you would have with trying to move, like move a person. But it's basically, I mean, something like that, that's 3D printing just on a grander scale. Sure. I might tend to be a little bit more optimistic is not the right word, but shockingly naive. Maybe I'm maybe I'm shockingly naive. So the the Easter egg is is obviously in the date. You know, twenty thirty eight marks the Unix time apocalypse when mm. Unix time for all the thirty two bit Unix systems that are out there. That's when it rolls over, and we'll have another Y two K non event. I'm sure. I think I actually think that we are headed towards flying cars and I think it's going to be a non-electric solution. I think we're going to get to uh, fusion fission energy by by then, you know, heavy water or something where energy doesn't become the factor. I do agree that until we until we do something about our society, you're going to have the lawyers and liability lawyers and insurance agents and and the like you're going to have all sorts of liability and, and concerns. And we are, uh, I do agree, we are naive when it comes to that. Sometimes it's just acceptable. I mean, you, 
back up when we were growing up, roughly, right? No one wore seatbelts in cars. No. You know, I remember taking trips across the U.S. with my parents, and my brother and I were, like, dancing and bouncing around the backseat. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. You know, taking naps across the, the floor of the backseat, totally unbuckled and, you know, not a care in the world. Uh, I do, I'm not Elon Musk in thinking that, that our society is going to be ruled by robots and, and AI, so I don't have a fear of them. But I actually think that real AI in the sense of like a, a Skynet kind of thing is further off than a lot of people think. Um, I'd agree with that. I think there's elements of it, and I think there's building blocks where we could get to it. I think uh, we have a lot of systems that are interconnected, probably more than should be, but I don't think it's going to be at a point where you're going to have some sort of sentience about it. You know, it, AI, I mean, even if we we take a step back from the more like futuristic kind of AIs, look at look at things like video games. Even though modern video games, the AI that, that they will display as far as the way they interact with the players is light years ahead of what it was 20 years ago. It's still in many cases, it's not that hard to beat it. I mean, because it's still a machine and it still has patterns and it still has things that it's queuing off of. And once you figure out what those are, you can exploit them. AI, I mean, intelligence is very, very difficult, especially when it's implemented by programmers who are lazy like me. <laughs> yeah, and you know what you you know what you were saying too about about flying cars. The one thing that I maybe the one saving grace that we might have there is did you did you watch the opening ceremony from the Olympics where they had the the drones? I did. And that was cool as hell. But yeah, so they had Intel had was it the 1200 drones or something that were all flying in formation and making patterns and it was all really cool. Right. I think that as far as flying cars go, it would not be probably a car in the sense of you are driving it. Yes. It would be plugged into the, essentially the central air traffic control, and it would manage getting you where you're supposed to go. It would coordinate, you know, routing everyone so they won't hit each other. And, and the, you know, and the, and the, the cars would, sort of like the drones, they, they all communicate with each other, and they figure it out. So maybe then to wrap up, this is kind of branch off of something that you and I were going back and forth on as we were planning this. What's your kind of take on the current state of uh, IT or STEM education and recent graduates? Yeah, it's a shame that that uh, physics that physics couldn't be here for this because I know he has opinions on STEM education. I have said for years that IT education or computer science education, moving away from C as a teaching language was a huge mistake because they largely replaced it with things like either C sharp or Java. And they're, they're, they're wonderful languages. Uh, I've used both. I use C sharp daily. I love it. But modern languages and modern frameworks do their level best to hide all the nastiness from you. And for, from a productivity standpoint, it's wonderful. Me doing your own memory management is awful. I mean, just I remember just from back in my C days, it's terrible. If your program is any kind of complex at all, it's probably leaking memory all over the place unless you're really, really, really careful. The, the downside is that it hides so much from you that you don't always understand what it's doing. And I think that CS departments, well, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's, ne if it's necessarily their fault. Maybe it is. They are not turning out graduates that know how to think algorithmically. So they don't, they can't look at a problem and break it down into pieces. And even if you forget about computer algorithms for a minute, but if you just look at a problem, you know, if I, if I need, if, if I have data that looks like this and I need to make it look like that, how would I do that? And I've seen graduates come in year after year after year. And it seems like the ones, the, the really good ones would probably have just figured it out. You know, basically without, without a four-year CS degree, if you had put this problem down in front of them, they may have not known how to quite program it, but they could have explained to you how to break it down. And so that's, that's my biggest problem with, 
certainly with, with recent graduates is the the shift in the, the shift to languages that are more abstracted from the hardware like C sharp or Java has resulted in graduates that are less aware of what a computer actually does. And that manifests itself in, well, in inefficiency and kind of just general sloppiness. They just, they did, they don't understand. They don't understand what the computer is trying to do. So they, or even if it's a, a black box, if you think about what, what the result is, you should have some idea of how it has to go about it. But I see so many come out that don't, just don't get it. I w- and there, oh, I, oh, I'm sorry, I just wanted to add one more thing. There's a, there's a difference between writing code and programming, at least in my mind. And they're teaching a lot of people to write code, but they're not teaching many to program. 100% agree. I see it. I still do interviews for our company for new hires. And I'm interviewing people that are one to three years out of school, um, sometimes a little bit more. And it, and it kind of worries me. I, I see the same exact thing that you described. Kids that, are, that understand a programming language, but not how to program. And I'm a firm believer, I'm, I'm not advocating that we move IT, quote unquote, IT education earlier. I think we should expose it, but I think at a grade school level and, and even into high school, you need to teach basics like science and math. And, and yeah, in high school, you could start getting into programming and maybe that's, maybe kids who are really into it can do it outside of school. Um, but I don't think you need to focus on it there. But Having a real grounding, I graduated with a computer science degree in the early 90s. I took an algorithms class where we didn't, didn't write a single line of code on a computer. You know, it was all paper. It was all understanding the algorithms and how they worked and why one sorting algorithm was better than another and, and the different considerations. You know, performance is one, but memory utilization is another, edge cases uh, how it handles different types of data. It's things that I think are missing in, in a lot of computer science education curriculums today. I tend, when I interview, I tend to do a few things. I tend to try to remove, if you will, the name from the resume because I don't want to be biased. And, and that's not being, I'm not trying to be high and mighty about it, but but I tend to try to go in an open slate. And I I kind of do once over on the resume and then I don't bring it in the room with me. And when I talk to them, I try to get them talking about their experience and how they've approached problems, because that's what I want to hear, mm-hmm. is how they approach a problem. Because most good, I'll call them developers rather than programmer. Most good developers, the programming language is a construct. Mm-hmm. And how it's, it's really about how they can manipulate the data to get a particular result. And how I do it, whether it's Java or C Sharp or like we're chatting on Twitter, Smalltalk, Ada, Lisp, Forth, mm. you know, we could rattle off a whole bunch of different languages and a lot of us, you know, developer nerds can get off on it and, and you know, cry about, you know, holding up fingers and counting open and closed parentheses in Lisp. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever done Lisp, you've done that, right? You've gone one, two, three, two, one, two, mm-hmm. right? And you've counted those. That's not programming. Well, maybe in the sense that you described, that's programming. That's not developing. That's right. Not, that's not being a developer. The other trend I'll see recently is what I'm, a couple of the others uh, at my company and I talk about in that we call them uh, stack overflow jockeys, <laughs> where they, they have the basics. Like they, you know, they know how to use an IDE to do development. They know some programming. But basically what they have learned to do is cut and paste from online sources. Mm-hmm. So if they need to do a sort, they just Google sorting and they find one that seems to work and they cut and paste it in. And it that's even worse. Yeah. So Because because they, they don't really understand what it's doing. Not at all. Yeah, but but it's like, yeah, this and, and I mean I will say that I mean Stack Overflow has has saved me a ton of time. It's a great resource, you know, in 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 a, in a bunch of different areas. Um, but in 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 all things, you have to understand what it is you're doing. It's it's fine to take a solution from somewhere, but you need to you need to at least check it over for reasonableness. Does this look 
okay. <laughs> yes, it works, but is this right? Right. And you know what? You know something that's amazed me also for years. I've known people that have been programmers for a decade that are just horrible at debugging, and it just floors me. How so, have you made it ten years or more without being able to, to debug something? And you know, and then they hand me the problem, and five minutes later, I found exactly where it's wrong. And I've never seen this system before. So here's the question that I ask interviewees, and I swear. Half the people at my company must think I'm insane when I'm asking this question. But I bring up debugging, and I say that I have this pet theory that there are two types of de- people as uh, people's approaches to debugging. One is that they fired up an IDE and they want to step through it, right, and use the built-in debuggers that you have and pick your IDE, mm. um, or God forbid, use GDB or whatever. Or the other camp is I'm going to pepper my code with system out, print line, console.log, you know, whatever your output or logging statement is. Mm -hmm. And I ask them to defend it. And probably 80% of the candidates I get will pick one or the other. And out of that 80, maybe half of them give a reasonable explanation as to why they do it. But the ones that I'm really impressed with are the ones who answer, it depends. Because I've worked on single server type systems and I've worked on massive distributed systems. There's, there's really no way that you're going to use an ID to debug a re- near real-time distributed system. Right. It just doesn't work that way because you'll get a non-deterministic bug that happens at different times and you'll never be able to find the right breakpoint or the right exact right conditions for it or even even single server type applications that are multi-threaded exactly so the the ones that really impress me are the ones that say it depends and if they can go that next step and explain why that because of multi-threads or distributed systems or even user interaction that you need to there's different cases for using different ones those are the ones that get me and they're they're becoming rare yeah Good. Well, hey, I appreciate the time. You know, we've, we've pretty much run our time out here. Appreciate you answering the questions and playing along with our little interview and minion series. <laughs> Thank Hope you, for you enjoyed me. it. I th- yeah, I did. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Radiation was dangerous. 